My best friend Rosemary and I had a very involved secret life when we were in elementary school. After we saw The Day the Earth Stood Still on TV, we invented a whole secret life in which we were twins from the planet Venus. From the Kitchen Sisters and NPR, the hidden world of girls. And we were in charge of the entire solar system, as well as Earth. This mostly involved our having secret contact with beetles. An hour of stories and more. Coming of age, rituals and rites of passage, secret identities. Women who crossed a line, blazed a trail, changed the tide. On occasion, they would ask us to use our highly developed shape-shifting ability. The Hidden World of Girls. I'm your host, Tina Fey. Back in a moment. From the Kitchen Sisters and NPR, welcome to The Hidden World of Girls. An hour of stories and more. Stories of girls and the women they become. I'm your host, Tina Fey. Elizabeth Stamatina Fey. I was thinking of my mom. My mom's a Greek immigrant. Her parents were immigrants. And she had three younger brothers, and she wanted to go to college and was surprised to be informed at 17 that, oh no, you're not going to college. Your brothers are going to college, and the money that we maybe would have used to send you to college we're sending back to the village in Greece to help other members of the family. And it was just this kind of waste. Like, she was very smart. My mom can, like, pick up a cryptogram on the paper and do it, and, like, she'd be like, time me. When I found that out, and I was, like, well into my 30s when I found that, it was just so shocking that it was one generation ago. She's not my grandmother. When I was applying to colleges, my mom was like, I want you to apply to Princeton. Like, she had me apply to all the colleges that I think she wanted to have applied to. As a kid, I spent a lot of time by myself. My brother's eight years older than me, so he was, you know, in high school, he was kind of off and gone and playing by myself. Occasionally dressed in colonial garb uh, when I was six. I grew up in Philadelphia, which has all these historical sites, and I was very influenced by the bicentennial come home from school and relax in some colonial garb. My dad can be kind of intimidating, definitely a person that we didn't want to um, get in trouble with. But at the same time, he also exposed my brother and I to painting and art museums and took us a lot of places. I'm born in 1970, and 77, 78, the height of the women's movement, there was a lot of impetus for girls to play Little League and girls to play sports, and they, he was very on board with that. He and my brother would take me out to teach me how to play baseball, and they would say to me, um, if you throw like a girl again, we're going in. So throw again, don't throw like a girl. <laughs> the Hidden World of Girls. These stories travel the world from the dance halls of Jamaica to a racetrack in Ramallah, 
from a roadside in Russia to a slumber party in Manhattan, from the middle of the city to the middle of nowhere. We begin our journey in the dunes of the Sahara. I am Fadimata Waletuma. I come from Mali, Tuareg of Mali. And I am the leader of the group Tartit, women's group. Tartit are five beautiful women who perform together traditional music from uh, the region of Timbuktu. The life of Tuareg is uh, the life of nomads living uh, in the desert in a camp, in tents. Every time we move, we have to pack everything, put it on uh, camel. There are no phones, no electricity, no water. They are all musicians in the camp. Everybody participates. Clapping, singing, uh, dancing. At night, it's uh, young people from different camps. They gather on a dune, just use the moonlight until a girl is 10 years old, they cut their hair. They stop cutting the hair when she's 10 so that when she becomes a woman around 12, 13, she has already beautiful hair. Beyond the Tuaregs, if someone doesn't love you anymore, you have to leave him. They say that, well, the more time you divorce, the more beautiful you are and successful. Within the Tuaregs, the women throw a party when they divorce. The divorce party is, is a bigger party than the wedding. The inspiration for The Hidden World of Girls came from reading the obituary of Lula Mae Hardaway, Stevie Wonder's mother. Abandoned at birth by her teenage mother, raised by sharecropper relatives who died when she was young, a teenager forced into prostitution by her husband, a single mother whose 10-year-old blind child was discovered singing on a porch stoop in Detroit, Lula Mae Hardaway who shared a Grammy for writing Sign Sealed Delivered and I Was Made to Love Her with her genius son. If this was the secret life of Stevie Wonder's mother, who else would we find if we entered the hidden world of girls? My name is Helen Connors. I live in Hazel Hill, Dublin 24. I come from a traveling family. Travelers got their name because they were so fond of traveling around the world in a caravan. They'd have their wagons and their horses You'd see them along the roadside. You could be in Dublin today, you could be in Cork tomorrow. That's how travellers got their name. We call you settled people. I sing a tune to the cows in the meadow And I whistle as I walk through the rain and the snow And my shoulders hurt from carrying this load I want to see the fire glow I want to feel the fire glow Travellers Somebody take me home. The Gypsies of Ireland. The People to. of Walking. Somebody take me home. Producers Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, the Kitchen Sisters, and Nuala Macklin take us to the foothills of Dublin into the hidden world of traveller girls. Travelling girls don't really mix much with settled girls. The ways of living, caravans, cider roads, kind of a come and go thing. 
My name is Shirley Martin, 23 years of age, three children. My family is a travelling family. But with my travelling clan, I'm happy as I've been and I can with my travelling clan. I'm happy as Japan in a pan. There are many similarities between Traveller and Romani Gypsy culture, but Travellers are historically nomadic indigenous Irish minority. My name is Mary Burke. I'm an associate professor at the University of Connecticut in Irish literature. For many generations, travellers provided services to an Ireland that was predominantly agricultural, seasonal farm labour, tinsmithing, horse trading. Romanis introduced travellers to wagons. The wagons then were overtaken by caravans, and caravans they were overtaken by mobile homes. But the vast majority of travellers today live in houses at certain times of the year. But that doesn't mean that prejudice or identity disappear. I was bullied an awful lot in school. You were a knacker or you were a pike, you had a solid tear like every day. You'd be in trouble fighting, trying to take up for yourself. I didn't learn a lot in school. If I said to the teacher, well, I can't do that, can I have some help? I had one teacher that said to me, why would you want to know how to read and write? A traveller won't do nothing with their life. You're going to go off and get married young and have loads of children. So I was just put down to the end of the class and everyone else was up on top. School is set up, the whole society is set up for kids who live in a house all year long. So for kids who moved around as traveller kids used to do. That led to a cultural attitude in Ireland that traveller kids weren't interested in learning, couldn't learn. And that carries over into today. In most travelling families, it's very, very strict with girls. Some mothers and fathers is too strict, where they wouldn't be allowed to go anywhere. You know, and that wasn't done the right way to be kind of a punishment. So this is why most travelling girls does get married young, because they want to get away from that. Travelling girls, most of them today, be like 16, 17 and 18, which will want marriage. You have three stages in life. You have your communion, confirmation, and then you get married. In travelling girls, your wedding day is your dream. Everything has to be big. You have to have a big wedding dress, big crown, big cars, big horse and carriage. I'm here at the Calme Horse Fair. I've been coming here for the past 20 years. The horse fair, the travellers come from all over the country and they buy and sell horses. You'd have to be here to witness it, to see the style, the fashion of the travelling women, yeah. Give it a couple of more hours and they'll start parading. My name is Terence McGough from Killarney. They're flashing their style to future husbands the horse fair. It was a meeting point for families who were on the road a lot of the year. Everybody came to this one location, socialised, drank, sang, made matches, arranged weddings. My name is Vivian McDonald. I come from Monaghan. I'm 14. This is my uh, cousin Pearl and she's wearing a shotgun orange skirt, a shotgun orange top. And my cousin Vivian's wearing a white jean skirt with uh, a white belly top, black gladiator shoes. She's got her belly button down. The girls travel in a pack, promenading. Look very glamorous. Lots of makeup and heels and long hair. My name is Terry McCarthy. I got married a month ago. When I was 13, I met my husband at a festival. And the minute I met him, I knew I was in love. I got engaged when I was 15. I had a big do for that. I got married 16. I had a lovely, big, huge white dress. Whatever you want on your wedding day, you have to get. When I got married, I got to design my own dream dress. I had a 50-foot train. It was all diamonds and lace. Travellers too, you have a mini bride. That's a girl you just dress up just like yourself for the day. Your mini bride has to look like you. This is a satin dress and it has sequins on the bottom of the train. 
My name is Tracy Hughes. I'm in the sewing business 26 years. The travelling community, they come over now to us to get their outfits made. They're unbelievable for glam and for bling for these weddings. My name is Jennifer Hughes. I do a lot of clothes for travellers. This is a white miniskirt. I used Elvis as inspiration, his white lycra suit, the flared one that he wears to his last concert. There is a lot of money involved in traveller weddings, both in terms of substantial dowry payments and putting on a good show. Rosalind McDonough, a contemporary traveller activist who writes on traveller themes, sees this wonderful ostentation that's often on show at traveller weddings as a kind of defiant traveller aesthetic. As women age in traveller culture, they gain power. They often outlive the men. They can become matriarchs within the culture, particularly if they have a large family. This prestige attached to being the mother of many. The travellers, when I was a kid, they used to come around our houses making pots and pans and doing odd jobs. And in return for that, they might get milk and bread and potatoes. People will not tolerate travellers living on the side of the roads now. It's dangerous for themselves. I'm Paul Connolly, the caretaker in Hazel Hill halting site. The country's trying to set up halting sites and get them settled get them to live in them. It's changed a lot now for travellers. They wasn't heard years ago, but now they are. My mother and father had 17 children, nine boys and eight girls. Myself, I left school when I was 11, but then I started a training course where I learned how to read and write. And then I done a childcare course. I passed all my exams. Now I can read and write what I never learned in school. I can learn to myself. The Hidden World of Girls continues in a moment. You're listening to The Hidden World of Girls, a collaboration between NPR, The Kitchen Sisters, and listeners around the world. I'm your host, Tina Fey. You have 87 new messages. Hello, I'm 12 years old. I'm on the New Moon Girls editorial board. I ran away from home at age 15 and put myself through art school, go-go dancing. My daughter got training as a car mechanic, opened a garage in Burlington, Vermont, called... Girlington. Thanks for calling NPR's Hidden World of Girls phone line. I'm Tina Fey. The Kitchen Sisters are gathering stories for a new series about the secret life of girls around the world. We're looking for stories about coming of age, rituals and rites of passage, women who broke a trail, crossed a line, changed the tide. Who should we know about? Your mother? Your mentor? The girl next door? You have four minutes to tell your story. 
My name is Liz Lenz. I have four sisters. Whenever one of us turns 13, my mother has this big makeup coming of age ritual where she'll sit you down and do your colors. She finds out if you're a fall or a summer. She teaches you how you put on eyeliner, start on the inside of your eye and then move out, eyeshadow. This is her gift to us to help us into that transition between being girls and women that you know how to look appropriate. Hi, my name is Brooke Spotted Eagle. I belong to a women's society on my reservation in South Dakota, the Braveheart Women's Society. My mother is one of the founding grandmothers who brought it back to life. I saw the Hidden World of Pearls and think this would be an amazing opportunity to share with other Native women a Ishnati coming-of-age ceremony for our girls. Thanks. Bye. The Braveheart Women's Society. Coming of age in South Dakota. Childhood was really rough. Lost and floating and drifting and just trying to survive. Didn't um, feel like I had a place on earth. My name is Marissa Joseph. I'm 21. I live in Ihangtuan territory in South Dakota. I was adopted as a newborn. A large part of my life I was kind of just bouncing between family members. I was a pretty strong alcoholic in my early teens and just on a really bad path. I didn't know who I was and what I was looking for and what I needed and had really wanted to, to not live anymore. In the summer of my 14th year, I went to Shnati and I felt like I was found. In the Braveheart Society a long time ago, the women would retrieve the dead from the battlefield and do what they could to help the family. In a way, we're doing the same thing, bringing back our people from emotional death. My name is Faith Spotted Eagle. We're in Lake Andes on the Ihangtua homeland near the Missouri River. It was in 1994. We went around three or four states and we interviewed grandmas. We asked them what they remembered of Ishnati coming of age. In the old days, as soon as a girl got her first moon, her first menses, the family would take them immediately and you would isolate yourself from the rest of the camp and they would begin teaching it. So we symbolically set up one camp a year and we have the girls come in for four days. One over to the north, bring it back, one over to the north. There. Yeah. From the very beginning, you need to put up your own teepee, your own lodge, you need to have that strength to house yourself. Where's your door at? On the girls' teepees, you have to have 13 poles. We use 13 poles because we have 13 moons in a year. See, they're cold. That's why we call Fast it a girls. rain camp, because it's a special time for women. Quickly to learn about themselves. The, the rain's camp. coming. <laughs> These four days, it's their sacred time. The girls can't feed themselves, they can't touch food, they can't drink water themselves. The mother or the auntie or whoever they bring with them has to do it for them. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Your mom has to feed you and give you water, and I just didn't like my mom. These four days, it's treating them like a baby one last time before they become young women. The feeding, it became kind of a little heartbreak, that bittersweet feeling because no longer will she be my little girl to feed anymore. You really began to start the foundation of what that adult relationship is with a mother and a daughter. I'm Teresa Hart. I didn't have this, you know, when I became of age. Growing up at a boarding school, 
They came from the BIA and took us, and I must have been five. I'd never seen my mom and my grandma and grandpa for nine years. They assigned us a little first grader, and we had to teach her English. I'd braid her hair and take care of her. Then they'd switch everybody all around again, and I'd get another little girl. And They wouldn't let us get close to each other. Every year, I try and teach what I know, bring that back to recreate that feeling that I felt. This year, I taught them how to make ceremonial food. The bapa, which is dried buffalo meat, then they pick buffalo berries. They'll gather sage, and over here, wakainchida, the woman's medicine. Men can't go to the girls' camp. Little boys can, like Baby J, who is still pretty young. He goes in the morning and, and sings to them and wakes them up. My Dakota name is Oyate Yushkimpi. That means the people are happy to see him. This is like my second year watching the fire. That love and acceptance song, we worked hard on that. We were like singing it at night, laying in the teepee. You just have to start singing it over and over again until you get it stuck in your head. I just don't know when the hey hey part comes. We talked to them about modesty and courtship, pregnancy, and suicide and not being afraid of doctors and having to get a checkup. Sexual abuse and incest can pose a huge problem within families. And we're always talking about this concept of a camp circle. We can't be attacking each other and doing this mean girl stuff. Come on, everyone, get up and dance. Don't be shy tonight. Quit standing by the door, hit the floor. Young and old girls, play My name is Madonna Thunderhawk. As a grandmother, I just wanted to come and spend a few hours. This is part of what I need to do. At one time, all of this was underground. We only got the Native American Freedom of Religion Act in the late 70s. Up until that time, it was federal law that Indian people couldn't practice their sun dances and ceremonies. So we had to stand our ground to have these things out in the open again. When I went to Ishnati, my grandmother gave me the name Wamadi Khotawiya. It means Great Eagle Woman. My sister has a really awesome name, and it's Stan Strong Woman. She's the baby girl, and she's lived a hard life as well, and she's been able to stand strong. It only seems befitting that you would change your name with where you are in your life. The Braveheart Society, these grandmothers, this connection with these girls that I had made. This is my sixth year into it. It's like I'm a six-year-old trying to live a new life, so I'm still pretty new to a lot of things. hidden world of girls. According to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, there are some 300,000 female hunters in America under the age of 16. NPR's Tamara Keith takes us to Wayne County, Mississippi to meet Megan Abair, a girl who hunts. My name is Megan Abair. I'm 15 and we're going to my cheerleading competition in Waynesboro, Mississippi. It's the Magnolia Cheer Competition, the first annual that we've ever had. I have brown hair and brown eyes. I'm short. I like to cheer. I like to hunt. I'm, I get really good grades in school. 
I keep I keep an A. Looking at Megan and her orange and blue cheerleading uniform, you'd never guess that this girl could shoot a rifle, could kill a deer with a single shot. Her hair is teased up and pinned back into a poop. So let's have a big warm welcome for Wayne County High School. Megan is tiny, one of the girls who flips through the air like a rag doll. And on this day, she lands every stunt. But the team comes in second place out of two. Megan is quiet on the drive home. Maybe she'll have better luck hunting deer on Sunday. Megan started hunting when she was in fourth grade. Her dad hunts every spare minute he can get. He would ask every, like, every time he went if we wanted to go. And one time I was like, yeah, I want to go. I just, I thought it would be pretty cool, you know, and I just loved it. For Megan's mom, Marcy Bear, it was a bit of a surprise that her little girl wanted to hunt. She wanted to do it, as a matter of fact, before my son did. And she went out there. Of course, a lot of the girls up here hunt. It took a year of hunting before Megan killed her first deer. It was a doe. I started shaking when I put the gun up. So he had to hold it steady for me. But she did it. She hit the doe in the shoulder. I kept saying, she didn't do that. You did that. Telling my husband. and He's like, no, she did. He said, I took the gun off safety and she shot it. And Megan was hooked. I just like peace and quiet. And you just get to sit there and wait. And then, you know, if there's little ones out there, you get to watch them play around. And like, if they're with their moms, I think it's cute. Because, you know, you can't kill them yet. But, you know, when they grow up, it's really good food. I don't know. I just like it. The family gets all the red meat it needs for a whole year during hunting season. Are you wearing those pants, Megan? Yeah. Are those your new ones or your old ones? It's 5.30 and we're getting ready to leave to go hunting. Let's go. It's still way before dawn and freezing cold when Megan and Marcy load into the truck and head out to the spot where the family hunts. It's a private wooded area. They have a stand, a small, slightly elevated shack with slits for windows. And there's a feeder off in the distance that occasionally spreads corn and protein pellets on the ground. Among hunters, baiting is controversial. It's illegal in some states, but standard practice here in Mississippi. Marcy lights a propane camp heater inside the stand, but it's still cold. Basically what you watch for is at the edge of the tree line, you watch for movement. The sun's coming up. Nothing's out yet. That's about it. Megan is updating her Facebook status on her BlackBerry. What are you saying in your status? Sitting in the stand, freezing, waiting for the deer to come out. She's texting, too, and occasionally nodding off. And Marcy says this is how it goes, (laughs) sitting side by side in the quiet. She and I would get out there. A lot of times we text back and forth sitting in the stand, just... That's how I learned how to text, was sitting in this deer stand with her. A little before nine in the morning, they give up. They go back to the house empty-handed, and Megan's little brother is gloating. He's killed a deer. It's his second one of the weekend. She's jealous. And, like, every time he goes hunting, it's, I mean, almost every time, he kills something. It's been five years since the last time she got one. I just want to get a buck. I don't care how big. I just want a buck. 
In the afternoon, they go back out, hoping for that buck. And they wait, and wait, and then... A spike. A young buck walks into the clearing near the feeder. He's about 120 pounds, with just two small antlers. You can shoot a spike. Betcha I can. Megan starts texting excitedly. You better put the phone down and put the gun up. Megan is tense, focused as she gets the deer in her sight. You got him. You got him. The shot is clean and fatal, just behind the front leg. Megan has her buck. Some guys think, you know, okay, well, you're a girl, you can't kill a deer. Well, you know, I can say, yeah, I've killed two of them. What now? You know? (laughs) Not a lot of people can say that. Mother and daughter come out of hiding in the deer stand, grab the lifeless spike by the legs, and hoist him into the back of the truck. One, two, three. (laughs) There are bragging rights in the bed of that truck. And venison. Within the hour, Megan's dad will butcher the deer, filling a cooler with the meat. hidden world of girls. Girls and the women they become. Before the Intifada 2000 and all the walls, I used to go to Tel Aviv with my car. I used to have a yellow plate, but now no. If I want to go to Tel Aviv, I have to go on taxi. I love cars. I love racing. I love speed. I used to go to the sea, have a sun at 10, and drive there 100 kilometers per hour. I put the music loud. Maybe Shakira. I love Shakira. She's my idol. Oh, baby, when you talk like that. I like Arabic music, too. I love it. For me, just to go at 10 o'clock in the night and go for a ride to the Dead Sea and come back, I feel good. From the West Bank, producer Sandy Tolan sent us these recordings from a racetrack in Ramallah. The Speed Sisters. My name is Betty Sade. I'm a member of Speed Sisters. We're eight girls. We competed with 45 men. Last speed test, I finished 12th place. When they say go, I press gas to the maximum. When I have to make like a donut between the cones, I lift up the handbrake and the car makes a circle. My name is Mariam Masrouje. I'm the board of the Federation of Motorsport in Palestine. We have a ladies team named Speed Sisters. As a Palestinian woman, I admire them. It's a new sport in Palestine in general, so it's very uh, good to see eight girls racing every race. We're here right on the edge of the Green Line. We have in the background Offer Prison, which is where many Palestinian political prisoners are held. And we have an Israeli military watchtower overlooking the track. I'm Karen McCluskey, and I'm a British diplomat with the British Consulate in Jerusalem. I came to the race in Ramallah with a friend, and there was these two girls racing. They were the only two out of like 50 guys. British people are crazy about motorsports. I sat down with the girls and I said, how do we support you? What can we do to help out? Because having fun 
women's issues kind of end up low down on the priority list within a, a conflict area. And uh, I sat with the girls and they said, well, the first thing's a car. Beautiful Palestinian British flags all over it. And that was an old banger, 1988. My name is Suna Weda from Jerusalem. My age is 39. I love it. I'm very proud to be the captain of this team, the Speed Sisters. Me, I started in a competition in Egypt and it was only for women. This is how I, I convinced my family. I told them it's only for women, so why not let me go there? I'm Razan Salamet. Many still think that uh, ladies here are ignorant, wearing uh, traditional gowns, and they don't have driving license. They are just married and bringing children. It's different now, like the Speed Sisters, the new one, Sahar, she's a teacher, and she joined the Speed. She's in her 30s, veiled and wearing a gown. This is uh, my car, my Golf. I go for work in my car, I do shopping. For all of the people, it doesn't look like a race car. But I said, this is a race car, you have to just imagine. Well prepared, well equipped, I clean it all the time. I love it. Some of the sisters, the, the new ones, it was the first race for them. They said, look at the boys, they are laughing. I told them, don't worry, don't look at anyone. Just put your aim and just continue. You are now in a team. To be in a team is more uh, stronger than being individual. The hidden world of girls. Stories from Louisiana, Russia, and Venus when we return in a moment. I'm Tina Fey with more stories from NPR's Hidden World of Girls. Hidden worlds, violence, crime, inexplicable events that shape who we are, that happen before you even know what hit you. The Kitchen Sisters take us to Louisiana into a story of crime, family, and reckoning. Deborah Luster, One Big Self. She was uh, very glamorous, but, you know, she never put on any sort of airs. There was no sedity with her. She was infected with that southern ancestor worship thing, all into the arts of dress and manners and the home and the table and 
conversation and storytelling. She was a shutterbug. My name's Deborah Luster. My mother and father divorced when I was a baby, and I've lived with my grandparents, so we communicated a lot through photographs. You know, if I got a new coat, I would have to be photographed, and usually I wouldn't want to be photographed, so it would be the back of the coat. There would be photographs of me and my cat, and my grandfather and me. And from her, I would get posed photographs. She would dress up even when she was cooking, designer clothes and high heels. I mean, she would wear a mink coat to a tractor pull, red hair, big glamour puss. <laughs> um, my mom um, was murdered on April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1988. Um, she was murdered in her bed by a contract killer who came in through her kitchen window, down her hall, and shot her five times in the head. And so, um, since I was the only other person that had seen this guy, I reasoned that he might be after me as well. <laughs> so for about seven or eight years, I was pretty much a mess. After she died, I started trying to photograph. My mom had photographed constantly. My grandmother had photographed constantly, documented our family. Sort of something that I could think to do to try to dig out a little bit from the place I'd found myself. My name is C.D. Wright. I'm a poet, and I collaborate with the photographer Deborah Luster. Debbie had moved to northern Louisiana, to Monroe. She started noticing that the landscape was fairly emptied out. Um, then she noticed that it was fairly emptied out, but for the fact that there seemed to be a lot of prisons. And uh, she thought, well, maybe that's where everybody is, which in fact is where everybody is. While I was scouting to photograph in northeast Louisiana, I just kept coming across these little prisons. It was a Sunday afternoon and I knocked on the prison gate and the warden came out and I asked him if I might photograph some of the inmates there. I photographed there once and realized that it was a project that I had been looking for for a long time, something uh, in response to the murder of my mother. It was like it lifted when I went in the gates. It became something else. She got entrance to the women's prison at St. Gabriel and the minimum security male prison in a place called Transylvania and Angola, maximum security prison. I started taking very straightforward, formal portraits. Most of the inmates posed themselves. Some of them wrote messages that they held up. One woman wanted to hold her shoe. I photographed in the cotton fields. They still pick cotton by hand at Angola. I photographed the women at their Mardi Gras celebration, the Halloween haunted house at the women's prison. All these costumes, alligator girl and rat face, and one inmate sits in an electric chair, and the other is the executioner, and she throws a switch. 
at Angola where, you know, 90% of the men that go there die there, it was very sober. There was no uh, clowning around and very formal. The way they would pose themselves was very sort of 19th century. They would all receive images back. I returned 25,000 prints to inmates. They made themselves so vulnerable for me. And it's, it's not often that uh, you have an encounter like that. I know a lot of it was that they were actually posing for the people that they loved. Their husbands, their wives. There was a woman who asked to be photographed. She said, to I've been here 15 years. I'm down for 99 years. I have 19 children. My children haven't spoken to me since I came to prison. Perhaps if I had some photographs I could send them, it would soften their hearts to me. A few months later, she said, four of my children came to visit me. The baby came, and he's now 19, and he was five years old when I came to prison. The last photograph for many of them is their mugshot. Debbie's working out a long-term relationship to violence. My mother, I think it's the kind of thing she might have done. She had this way of looking right through the veneer, right into people. She could sort of see the bottom in people. She liked to photograph her family. The food on your plate, you brushing your teeth, she photographed what she loved, and that's what she loved. Deborah Luster's prison photographs and more of her journey are at hiddenworldofgirls.org. My best friend Rosemary and I had a very involved secret life when we were in elementary school. Pat Cadigan is a writer in London. She sent us this story. After we saw The Day the Earth Stood Still on TV, we invented a whole secret life in which we were twins from the planet Venus, and we were in charge of the entire solar system, as well as Earth. And this mostly involved our having secret, exclusive contact with the Beatles. Hello, this is John speaking with his voice. We're all very happy to be able to talk to you like this. Who came to us for advice about their songs and how to deal with fame and other important matters. On occasion, they would ask us to use our highly developed shape-shifting ability to become them and finish recording sessions and concert tours when they were too tired to go on themselves. Every detail of our exciting lives was being broadcast to our home planet Venus as well providing many hours of entertainment for all the other Venusians. Of course, we had many other superpowers, which allowed us to help out Superman, Flash, Wonder Woman, and a few other superheroes. Now, this complex double life lasted from 1963 to a time when we should have outgrown it, except we were having too much fun. Eventually, our lives diverged. Rose stayed in the town where we grew up, married and had two daughters. I went off to university and eventually became a science fiction writer. We reunited in the early 80s when we were both having marital problems and tried to keep in touch, although contact became sporadic again. 
We'd been out of touch for a few years when I found out that Rose had died of bone cancer about two weeks before 9-11, only a few days before she would have turned 50. She's on Venus now. I'm sure of it. The Hidden World of Girls. I'm Tina Fey. Traditions, obstacles, possibilities. When I find myself in times of troubles, Mother Mary... Russian culture includes an iconic image of a certain kind of elderly woman, a babushka, short, squat, in peasant clothes, sitting on a roadside selling vegetables from her garden. Now, that stereotype is about to explode. From NPR correspondent David Green, Russia's singing babushkas. These are the Buranova Babushkas, a group of elderly singers who've been charming audiences across Russia. The dozen or so women, mostly in their 70s and 80s, are singing this Beatles hit translated into Udmurt, the native language of their region in central Russia. The babushkas used to just sing around their village, but a few years ago, a local fan suggested that they experiment with rock. The ladies got to translating, and they began covering songs from iconic Russian rocker Viktor Tsoi and Western bands like the Eagles and the Beatles. YouTube videos went viral. They were invited to audition for Eurovision. The message from these women became clear. It can be hip to be a babushka. I went to meet the babushkas 600 miles east of Moscow. Their tiny village, Buranova, is like so many others in Russia. Old wooden and brick homes, dirt streets that are largely empty as an older population is dying off. We met in one of the babushkas' kitchens, and here's how I was greeted. On stage and here in the kitchen, the women wear traditional Udmurt clothing, long dresses and colorful headscarves. Their native language is closer to Finnish than Russian. And yet these women share a tough reality with women across Russia. Because of a history of hard work and alcoholism, life expectancy for men in Russia is 62. Russian women generally live more than a decade longer and so often live their later years alone. For these babushkas, Music has become a reliable companion. 72-year-old Valentina Piachenka left her alcoholic husband in 1984, shortly before he died. She got along on her own, but it was tough. Thirteen years ago, the tiny woman was using an electric saw to build a new porch. Somehow it uh, takes the, the sleeve of my sweater and... Uh, it's her lower right arm was cut off. She showed me her prosthetic arm. It's too heavy to wear all the time, but she puts it on for concerts. And at those events, she sings, she smiles, and life seems okay. I'm an optimist, Piachenka told me. You'll never hear me complain. The senior member of the singing babushkas is an even tinier woman named Yelizaveta Zarbatova. She's 84 and she performed a solo for me over tea. Zarbatova wrote this song in 1957 after her husband was electrocuted and killed on the job. The song is about a woman losing honor when her man dies. 
Today, Zarbatova looks back to her husband's death and she believes it made her stronger and turned her into a musician. After I lost my husband, I received some kind of gift, the ability to compose songs. The music comes from my heart. The suffering comes right from my heart. And there's 72-year-old Galina Koniva. She lost her husband in 2004 to drinking and diabetes. But what's the good of being depressed, she said. And then she started singing. Those lyrics mean life moves on. And it sure has for these babushkas. Last year, the babushkas were invited to the finals of Russia's Eurovision Music Contest. The flashy stage design and the neon lights seemed better suited for a Lady Gaga concert. But the babushkas soaked it all in. They danced around, beaming, as they sang about how to raise children and how to sow the seeds of the land. The Buranova babushkas did not win the right to represent Russia at the International Eurovision competition, but they sure stole the show that night. And they're making their community proud. The Udmurt Republic of Russia was known for Soviet weapons factories and as the home of Mikhail Kalashnikov, the designer of the AK-47. Resident Alexander Pilin says this may be changing. Now I think it's Buranovsky babushki. It's the best brand in, in our republic. And we're, we're walking now into a building that is called the Dom Kulturi. That is Russian for the House of Culture. And uh, it's an old brick building that the babushkas still use today uh, for their concerts, for rehearsals. And, and we're going to get our own concert today, it looks like. The Beatles hit yesterday is one of their crowd pleasers. The babushkas have gotten themselves a producer in Moscow who's booking their gigs. They make a bit of money and they donate most of it to try to rebuild a church in their village that was destroyed during Stalin's time. This year so far they've raised $4,000 for that church. As for what's next? If you listen to professional sounding tracks like this one, seems like the babushkas would be ready for another shot at Eurovision. Mostly, though, they're just having fun on the road and enjoying each other's company. David Green, NPR News, Moscow. My name is Alexandra Hart. Last year, when I was six, I finished climbing all 48 of New Hampshire's highest mountains. I climbed in the spring, summer, fall, and winter. The Hidden World of Girls is produced by the Kitchen Sisters, producers Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, and NPR. Mixed by Jim McKee at Earwax Productions. The associate producers are Nathan Dalton and Laura Folger. This is the story about my aunt. She's now almost 70. When she retired from teaching, she bought a sailboat, took her boat, and decided she was going to sail around the world. Produced in collaboration with Madalika Sika, Tracy Wall, and Maeve McGoran from NPR's Morning Edition, and Christopher Turpin, Allison McAdam, and Melissa Gray at All Things Considered. 
Special thanks to NPR's Executive Director of News Programming, Ellen McDonald. There are monologues compiled from the very words of the 12 female Nobel Peace Prize laureates. Our team at NPR's Digital News, Keith Jenkins, Aaron Killian, Tanya Ballard-Brown, Coburn Dukehart, Claire O'Neill, Aaron Adams, and Andy Carvin. I'm 47 years old. I have been skateboarding since I was 15 years old. The women who came before me were my role models. Laura Thornhill and Ellen Berryman and Ellen O'Neill and Project interns, Patty Fung, Lisa Morehouse, Marie Duzama, Tess Kenner, Lacey Roberts, and Eloise Meltzer. Deep thanks to Ellen Lewis, John Lyons, and Joe Boyd. I'm Eve Ensler. I'm a writer, a performer, and an activist. Thanks also to Eve Ensler, whose work helped ignite this project. This is Frances McDormand, Frances Louise McDormand. Deep bow to Frances McDormand, our hidden world of girls' muse. Further thanks to the countless individuals, organizations, and archives who joined this worldwide collaboration, sharing their recordings, stories, and music. To listen to your messages, push 3. And to all the callers to the NPR Hidden World of Girls phone line. Major funding for the Hidden World of Girls was provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and by listener contributions to the Kitchen Sisters productions. Our executive producers are Susie Tompkins-Buell and Mark Buell. To download a podcast of this special, go to hiddenworldofgirls.org. The Hidden World of Girls specials are distributed by NPR and PRX, the public radio exchange. With the Kitchen Sisters, I'm Tina Fey.